Our reading is from Psalm 25, Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. This is the word of God. Life is complicated. Um, Think about your average week. Probably don't think about last week or the last couple of weeks. I guess for most of us, they weren't particularly average weeks. Um, But think about the amazing array of choices that you have to make, from the simple to the complex. Um, Our peace of mind is often threatened by uh, the bewildering range of responsibilities, concerns, the multiple places we try to be, the transport system that doesn't want to get us there, uh, the appointments and the meetings, the events that we try to be mentally prepared for, the relationships that we struggle to maintain, the health that we try and invest in, even as we worry about the latest research on telly that tells us that everything we're doing is wrong, so wrong. And there are the temptations that come our way, uh, the sins we struggle with and and fail sometimes to avoid. Every day is a new day with a fresh set of complicated opportunities and challenges, priorities to identify, pitfalls to avoid. Sometimes it can feel exhilarating. Other times it can feel like a bit of a, a weary trudge through the wilderness. Other times it can just be very, very complex. And as we get older, life can get more and more complex as more responsibilities come our way. And let's face it, living in London adds a a layer of complexity to life compared to a lot of other locations. 
the sheer number of people that we pass every day, the sheer number of people involved in our lives, uh, the pace of things. Engineering works on the tube, or did I mention transport already? Um, So in each of our lives, struggles uh, can be very specific, very personal. Uh, Situations can be very convoluted. Life is complicated. And I wonder whether in all of that complicated array of life and its troubles, whether you feel that God is there for you in all of the detail of that complexity? Is he somebody that you feel able to turn to in the little details of your complicated life? Whatever the problem, whatever the temptation, whatever the struggle, Over Christmas, um, we saw a film called The Holiday. I don't know if you've seen that. Very sweet film. uh, For a while, I thought it was by Richard Curtis. It's got that sort of feel-good vibe about it, but it turns out it isn't when I looked it up. Um, It's just a a great sentimental Christmas movie. Uh, Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet swap houses and have a a sort of house swap holiday. And uh, they're trying to get away from their complicated lives. Both of them have very, very complicated lives. And predictably, each of them meets a bloke in their new location who becomes a potential boyfriend. Um, But then there are setbacks. Uh, Cameron Diaz meets Jude Law. Uh, Kate Winslet meets Jack Black, of all people. Um, But both of them struggle to commit. Things seem to be perfect, but the complications get in the way. And when they they sort of pull back from committing to a relationship, the other person asks why, and the answer is, it's complicated. It's complicated. In other words, it's too difficult to explain uh, my life. You, you, You wouldn't understand. You wouldn't be able to deal with it. I can't really give myself to you. I can't entrust myself with all of my problems to you because... You just wouldn't be able to deal with all the complex stuff that's going on in my life. Now, it might sound crazy, but do you ever feel the same a little bit about God? Life is complicated, and I better just take care of it myself, because there's no point taking my problems to God. Maybe he wouldn't understand. Maybe he wouldn't be sympathetic. Maybe he wouldn't be able to see things from my point of view. A little bit like the way uh, people often start treating their parents when they become teenagers. Suddenly life gets more complicated. There are new experiences, new challenges, new struggles, and you start to think, well, there's not really any much point talking to my parents about this because they'd never understand. They'd get the wrong end of the stick. They'd just condemn me for the things that I've done wrong. And there wouldn't be any help in guiding me through my problems. And we're daft to react like that because usually our parents know exactly what we're doing and have been there and done that and actually they do understand and they'd be able to offer real help, real guidance and be on our side if only we'd trust them enough to talk to them about it. Now Psalm 25, it's a song, a prayer about trusting God no matter how complicated life gets. It begins in verse 1 with, an expression of absolute confidence and trust. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. 
I'm giving myself to you, Lord, entrusting my soul, my life to you without reserve. And the psalm as a whole speaks of doing that in all the complications of life, all the troubles of life. It's one of those psalms which runs through the alphabet, quite literally. Each line in the original uh, Hebrew version begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I was thinking it's a shame they can't translate it into English that way, but you'd run into trouble. I guess you'd need 26 lines instead of 22, and you'd have to have a line beginning with the word xylophone or x-ray or something like that. So we have to make do with a a little footnote at the top that tells us about that. Um, It's an acrostic poem, the verses of which begin with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But that means... It's a kind of A to Z. It's sort of a dictionary or a map, not of words or neighborhoods and streets, but of life. It's a sort of A to Z of experience as David flicks through his life. There's something comprehensive about this psalm. In only 22 verses, it manages in a general sense to cover just about everything, all the complexities, the troubles of life. And we'll see that as we go through. And it's the cry of an individual person before God, just one person pouring out his heart. It's introduced as a psalm of David at the top, so it's either by him or about him. But also, look down at the very last verse, verse 22. Finishes the psalm by saying this, Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. So although this is the heart cry of an individual, in a sense, he's speaking for everyone. And uh, it's a lyric, it's a song. Israel would have sung this together so that everyone uh, could gather together and lift up their, their troubles, lift up their souls to God and trust him through this complicated A to Z dictionary of life. So let's take a walk through this psalm, through the A to Z of David's troubles, and then Secondly, through the A to Z of his sins. That's one way you can divide up the the content of this song. There's no sort of neat structure. It's it's more of a stream of conscience as David pours out his heart. And let's pray that as we look at this, the words on his lips can become our words too, as we too lift up our souls to God. So first, through the A to Z of your troubles... God will guide you. And this is mostly towards the beginning and the end of the psalm. David uh, talks or prays or sings through his troubles, and they range far and wide. So have a look at verse 2. He cries, Don't let me be put to shame, or let my enemies triumph over me. David is afraid of being shamed, of humiliation. And reproach of being disgraced. As king of Israel, I guess he had enormous responsibility and there were endless ways in which he could have fallen from grace and brought scandal and dishonor to himself, to the role of the the throne, to his family, to the nation of Israel. Perhaps you relate to that fear of shame. Maybe you feel precarious in your position, whatever position that might be, all too aware of the many ways in which you could fall. And one way that David could have fallen was at the hands of his enemies. He prays in that verse, don't let my enemies triumph over me. And there are many enemies he could have been talking about. He had enemies in the nations surrounding him, which sought to attack and invade. He had enemies within Israel, 
people who opposed his rule as king and, and were seeking to overthrow him. He even had enemies within his own family. His son, Absalom, at one time sought to take over the throne from David. There's no specifics mentioned in the psalm, just a general awareness that his enemies were very real, very present, and very capable of causing him harm. In verse 19 at the bottom, he mentions them again and says, See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Maybe there was a particular uprising or attack going on as, as David wrote this psalm. And he feels their threats and their hatred very intensely. So who do we fear? Who do you fear in terms of enemies? It might be that you're facing deliberate, personally targeted opposition from somebody or some people as David was. Maybe because of a role that you occupy or responsibility that you have. Maybe at work, someone's trying to show you up or muscle in and take your position. You're politically under fire in some way. Maybe in your social circle, somebody's trying to sabotage your relationships. Even in your family. Maybe even somebody within your family is working against you. Or perhaps your enemies are are more non-specific, but you're all too aware of... I don't know, maybe walking daily through uh, an area where muggings are possible. Or perhaps drunken violence can break out and you have to pass through that area daily. Or maybe it's the fear of terrorism uh, that is so often in the papers and perhaps on our mind from time to time. In all of those scenarios involving enemies of different kinds, can we cry out to God as David did? And then in verses 16 to 18, towards the end of the psalm, David speaks of other troubles as well. He says in verse 16, I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from anguish. Look upon my affliction and distress. Times are hard for David, not just externally, but internally as well. His troubles are not just on the outside, but on the inside. His heart is weighed down by this pile-up of words that he uses in this song. Loneliness, affliction, trouble, anguish, distress. Is there one or more of those that fits your experience at the moment? Or describes how you felt at times last year during 2010? Or describes how you feel as you look forward, or maybe don't look forward, to this year? Maybe your heart is strong most of the time, but has moments of panic, fear, anguish, loneliness. What do you do? What do we do in those times? Can we cry out to God as David did, through the A to Z of his troubles, whether external or internal, whether physical or relational, emotional or mental, David turns to God. And what he seeks is guidance. All the way through this psalm, guidance is what is sought and guidance is what is promised over and over again. So have a look at all of these verses. Verse 4, David prays this, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Verse 5, Guide me in your truth and teach me. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs 
sinners in his ways. Verse 9, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Verse 12, who then is the man that fears the Lord, he will instruct him in the way chosen for him. And verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. You can't miss it all the way through those verses. Guidance is sought and guidance is promised through all the A to Z of life's troubles. David is saying to God, I'm trusting you. I'm entrusting myself to you in all of these situations. I'm not just trusting you as a kind of distant deity who might welcome me into heaven one day. I'm not just trusting you for long-awaited promises that might be fulfilled one day. I'm trusting you every day in the detail of my life to be there for me and to guide me. I'm trusting you to know and to care and to see what I'm going through and to be both able and willing to help me in those moments. David's saying, God, I trust you to to have what it takes to guide me, the wisdom to give right advice, the knowledge to assess all of these complicated circumstances comprehensively and truthfully. And I trust you to have the power to intervene and make a difference as I follow your guidance. For David, God is not just for church and quiet times, not just for the future promise of eternal life, great as that is. God is the one to trust for guidance in the daily complexity and troubles of life. So David looks to God's word, looks to his ways, his truth, his teaching, his paths, his instruction, his guidance, his covenant, all of those words and phrases pointing to the guiding voice of God. So the one who is humble, says David, in verse 9, and comes to God in fear in verses 12 and 14, they will find God's word to be the guidance that they need for life. Verse 14, they will find that God confides in them. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? God confides in us. He's made himself and his ways known to us so that we can walk on paths of truth and find our way through all of life's complexities. David points to a a fantastic outcome of all this in verse 2. Those who hope in God will never be put to shame. And what does that look like? Well, for Old Testament believers, uh, David spells it out in verse 13 and paints a picture of what those who trust in God will have. He says, uh, he will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. Uh, For an Old Testament believer, that would have been uh, right in front of them. Um, The trajectory of the Bible's promises means for us that the ultimate fulfillment of promises like that is the everlasting prosperity and land Uh, that we'll inherit in the new creation uh, as we enter eternal life for all of those trusting in Jesus. So this is not necessarily a promise that following God's guidance will remove all of our troubles in this life. But it is a promise that he will guide us through them. And that in itself is a very, very great blessing to take hold of every day. I promise that if we come to his word humbly, seeking his will, he will confide in us. He will reveal his 
character, his plans. If we come to God with the A to Z of our troubles, he will guide us. His word can do that. But there's another aspect to this psalm as well. David doesn't only speak of his troubles of uh, body and mind. He also speaks of his failure to obey God, his failure to, uh, to listen and obey, his rebellion and his sin. So our second heading this morning is this. For the A to Z of your sins, God will forgive you. And this is mostly towards the, the middle of the psalm, suggesting that right at the heart of all of the troubles David is going through is his awareness of his own failings. It starts in verse 7. David says, remember not the sins of my youth or my rebellious ways. Again, there's a, a comprehensiveness about it, an A to Z-ness about David's confession of sins. He's holding a dictionary of his sin in his hand, and he's so aware that it's full. He recalls in verse 7, the sins of his youth, they stretch right back to his youth. He's aware that they could come back to haunt him if God were to choose to remember them or to take them into account. But he's also aware of his present rebellious ways. He's still a sinner. So in verse 11, he says, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. There is a bigness, a largeness, a dictionary comprehensiveness about David's sin. There's one paraphrase I came across of verse 11 that puts it this way. Forgive my bad life, Lord. It has been a very bad life. That captures it rather well. All my sins, my A to Z of sins, my catalogue of failings, my lifelong and ongoing series of mess-ups and rebellion. David brings them all to God. And in verse 18, he asks God to take away all my sins. Now again, can you, can we, bring all of our sins to God? All of them. In all of their greatness and comprehensiveness. In the A to Z of your sins, are there some that you don't really talk to God about because it's too personal or too painful? Or you think maybe he wouldn't understand or he wouldn't be able to help. Well, do you remember David? Do you remember the, the one who had an affair with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and then arranged for her husband to die on the battlefield? Have you got something worse than that? I don't know. Um, do you uh, turn up the letter S in your A to Z of sins and under there is uh, skeleton in the cupboard? Worse than murdering your uh, mistress's husband? Perhaps, I don't know. Well, if you have, there are worse people in the Bible who receive God's grace. How do you measure up to Nebuchadnezzar, the, uh, the tyrant, murderous dictator of Babylon? Um, I feel relatively safe in your company. I don't know. Uh, look, um, can all of us come to God with our catalogue of sins just as David did? This psalm says we can. Just like David, we can know God's forgiveness. Let's look at the verses which speak of that, of God's forgiveness. Verse 6. David says to God, Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Verse 7. According to your love, remember me. David has the confidence to ask God, Don't remember my sins. 
Remember your mercy and your love. Please forget my sins. Please treat me as if I'd never done those things. Please just remember me with love. And the promise comes in verse 8, that God instructs sinners in his ways. This promise of guidance through the A to Z of life is for sinners. Sinners, not good people, are those who receive God's mercy and love, which are from of old. And verse 10 speaks of those who keep the demands of his covenant, which sounds as if it might exclude us. But if we read on, it seems that those who keep God's covenant are those who are forgiven. So verse 11, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And in verse 22, right at the end, the word redeem appears. Redeem, just a tiny hint of the payment that God would eventually make, the life of Jesus given at the cross to pay the price of redeeming sinners. At the cross, every sin you ever committed was paid for, all the temptations you've ever given into. At the cross, Jesus was bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning his blood-stained brow. As the song goes, this, the power of the cross, just one payment, one redemption for everything, for your catalogue and mine, the whole lot, this dictionary full of your sin and mine. It's as if there was one incredibly rich person who could write a check that paid off your mortgage, your student loan, whatever other debts you might have. And, uh, heck, pay off the, the British national debt, the Irish national debt, the, the, Greece, the Greek national debt, and everyone else who needs it. One check, one payment. Jesus paid the lot. So, go to him. Bank the check. Just like David did, go to God. Tell him everything. For the sins of your youth to the iniquities of yesterday, this morning, go to him. He will forgive you. Let's draw all this together by going back to the first couple of verses of the psalm. I want to encourage us in, uh, in all of our complexity of life this morning to lift up our soul and trust in our God. Lift up your soul. In other words, go to him with your circumstances, your troubles, your sins, with everything, your A to Z. Bear your soul before him like David did. God is invited by David in verse 18 to look upon my life, look upon my affliction. And verse 19, to see. Of course, God can see everything already. He doesn't need your request or your permission to look and see, at your, see your life. He knows what we need before we ask him. But think about teenagers and, and their parents again. Uh, the teenager might be hiding things, trying not to be found out, thinking they can't talk to their parents or seek their forgiveness or trust their advice. But parents, as we said, usually do know, or at least they can guess what their kids are up to. And isn't it so much better... When a child goes to their parents, the parent doesn't have to pry, doesn't have to look over their shoulder to find out what's going on. Isn't it so wonderful when a child goes to their parents? Isn't it a great expression of trust and love when the child just comes up to them and says, look, see, 
this is my life. And I'm hurting. I'm confused. I'm messed up. And I need your help. Isn't that so much better than the parent having to prize the fingers off their life? Our little Joel is uh, just 14 months old, so he's a long way from being able to say anything like that. But he's, he's getting more aware of himself and his surroundings. Uh, and he looks to us for safety and assurance and security, and he wants us to be involved in what he's doing. So uh, he might be bouncing away to some kiddie music. But then he looks over with a big grin on his face, and he wants us to grin back because he wants the reassurance that we're involved. And, uh, and of course, as parents, we love that. And that's what God wants us to do with him. Go to him with all the circumstances of life. Trust him for everything. Like a trusting child, go to God. In verse 16, David says, Turn to me and be gracious to me. How do you imagine God? Do you imagine God facing away from you with his back turned to you? I don't know about you, but when I pray, sometimes I mistakenly feel as if my sin is still in the way between me and God. And that I'm pleading with a God who has his back turned to me. And I'm sort of tapping his shoulder over and over again, hoping that he'll glance across and take interest in my life and maybe help me just for a moment. How sad to think of God that way when he's shown us such unconditional love, when he's such a wonderful father. God has already turned to us. God sees us. He already knows. More than that, he's already run to us like the father of the prodigal son. And he lives in us, with us, by his spirit. He never leaves us or forsakes us for a second. David didn't have the privilege that we have of seeing the cross. The cross that is in the past, a stake in the ground that says... Our assurance of forgiveness can be utterly certain. So lift up your soul to God. Go to the Father who loves you and bear your thoughts and your fears, your sins, your circumstances before him in all of their complexity. Give him your A to Z of worries. Just hand it over to him. Tell him about the catalogue of difficulties that you face. Confess your alphabet of sins. And then trust him. Trust in your God. Remind yourself, as David does in this psalm, of just how good God really is. At the end of verse 7, David says, For you are good, O Lord. And in verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. It's almost as if David had forgotten. Maybe he had. And needed to be reminded repeatedly of how good God is. God is always better, always more good and we think. Seeing as we've been talking about teenagers, do you remember Kevin the teenager, uh, the, the Harry Enfield comic character? Everything towards his parents was, oh, you never let me do anything. It's so unfair. I hate you. And it was just his standard response to everything his parents said. So uh, he would ask them if he could go over to his mate Perry's house. And his mum would say, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And Kevin, without even listening, would say, Oh, it's so unfair. You never let me do anything. I hate you. I can't wait for Joel to reach that stage. (laughs) Kevin was, of course, being unreasonable because his parents were generally lovely and very, very forgiving. And he had no excuse for treating them that way. 
If we turn from God imagining him to be unkind and unforgiving, we do so without reason, without evidence, without excuse. It's treacherous in the words of verse 3 to uh, paint an invented, ugly picture of God and then treat him that way. God is good. And like David, we need to remind ourselves repeatedly of that and not have a Kevin-style knee-jerk reaction about what we think God might say. Forgetting God's goodness will, will stop us going to him with our, 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 all of these things. But we will go to him if we remember who he truly is. We've seen in verse 6, he's the one whose great mercy and love are from of old. And there's more, verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. In other words, for those who trust Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you will never go to God and find him anything other than loving and faithful. His ways for you, his guidance for you are driven by his love and his faithfulness. He doesn't have hidden motives. He doesn't seek to trick you. He's not secretive or underhand or selfish in his ways. That's who he is, his permanent character. You can even say that is his name. David says in verse 11, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive. God doesn't just forgive us for our sake, but for his sake. To prove the worthiness of his character, his name. God has staked his name on the promise that he will guide us and forgive us in love and faithfulness. So as we finish, go to him and trust him every day, all day, as verse 25 says, in all the details of life. Trust him through the dictionary of troubles, the thesaurus of concerns that you might have, the encyclopedia of your sins, no matter how big it is, that we find ourselves embroiled in. Whatever life throws at you, trust him. So let's go back into this week with that verse at the top of the sheet ringing in our ears. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this song, this cry of one person's heart that echoes the cry of so many of our hearts, perhaps all of our hearts. Father, we pray that this week, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever life throws at us, you would help us to remember that you are the great, trustworthy God, the one who guides, the one who forgives, the one who is there for us. Forgive us, Lord, where we leave you in church or leave you in our Bibles or leave you in our quiet times and forget that you are with us moment by moment, guiding, loving, forgiving. Help us to call on you, to turn to you, to trust you, wherever we are, no matter how complicated life gets. For your glory's sake. Amen.